Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following is part two of a reading of the Fight Back document, Indigenous Struggle and the Fight for Socialism, Revolution, Not Reconciliation. The document can be found on our website and can be purchased in booklet form from our store on marxist.ca. This reading is performed by Comrade Mike Lickers. The Riel Rebellions and Their Aftermath Perhaps the most important episodes of resistance to the seizure of First Nations and Métis lands are the Red River Rebellion of 1869-1870 to and the Northwest Rebellion of 1885, both associated with the name of the great martyr, Louis Riel. The Métis Nation is a culturally distinct indigenous group whose origins began with the children of various European and indigenous peoples. The Métis Nation is geographically diverse, but maintains unique culture, traditions, languages, like Michif and Bunji, way of life, collective consciousness, and nationhood. The Red River Settlement, located in today's Manitoba, was inhabited by just over 10,000 people in 1871, mostly Métis, with almost an equal number of Francophones and Anglophones. The settlement was founded by Scottish settlers in 1812, but was dominated by the HBC, which had possessed the fishing and hunting rights throughout all of Rupert's land since 1670, although the land belonged to the First Nations and Métis. In 1836, the control of the colony was formally surrendered to the HBC, which they ruled from 1836 to 1869. However, the British imperialists and Canadian colonial state feared that if nothing was done, especially with the pressure from the United States, the territory of Rupert's land would be annexed by the United States. Moreover, the interests of developing Canadian capitalism, and also the interests of the Crown, demanded that the country be linked from coast to coast. The Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada resolved that, quote, in the view of the speedy opening up of the territories now occupied by the Hudson's Bay Company, and of the development and settlement of the vast regions between Canada and the Pacific Ocean, it is essential in the interests of the Empire at large that a highway extending from the Atlantic Ocean westward should exist, which should at once place the whole British possessions in America within the ready access and easy protection of Great Britain." Unquote. At root, the driving force of this conflict was a change in the material relations of production. As Howard Adams explains, the trouble was the conflict between two different economic systems. The old economic system represented by the Hudson's Bay Company and the new industrial system. He continues, the clash of these two economic systems fueled the hostilities of 1869 to 1870 in the Northwest, which resulted in Rupert's land being brought under the constitutional authority of the government in Ottawa, the seat of the industrial empire. At the top, the rulers of the HBC simply changed seats, with principal shareholder Donald A. Smith 
transferring his capital to railways, banks, and other industries. John A. Macdonald's government was filled with former HBC directors like Smith, who recommended annexing the Northwestern Territory so they could expand their own industrial empire and build a capitalist nation-state. Matters were, however, somewhat different for the people living in this vast territory who now had their land and entire way of life threatened. The Rupert's Land Act of 1868 authorized the land transfer, and the deal was signed and became effective on July 15, 1870, with the stipulation that treaties would be signed with indigenous nations. At the time, Métis were not legally recognized as an indigenous people by the Canadian government, and not included in the Indian Act, or assumed to be covered by the provisions of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. It was not until 2003 that the landmark Pauli decision that Métis received such acknowledgement. Naturally, in 1870, the HBC and the government negotiated without seeking the opinion of the Métis. This would fuel the anger of the Red River Métis. As mentioned previously, HBC surrendered Rupert's land, which amounts to one-third of the current Canadian territory, for 300,000 pounds, that is $1.5 million, which was a very cheap price at the time. The historian W. L. Morton says, quote, One of the greatest transfers of territory and sovereignty in history was conducted as a mere transaction in real estate, unquote. The transfer of territory was to be implemented on December 1, 1869. The Métis of Red River started to organize against this, quote, annexation without consultation, unquote, in October that year by forming the Métis Committee, with John Bruce as president and Louis Riel as secretary. In November, Riel led a group of some 400 armed riders to seize Fort Gary, a strategic point in the settlement the Red River Rebellion had begun. In December, a provisional government was formed by the Métis, the Legislative Assembly of Assiniboia, which drafted a list of terms for entry into Confederation. Faced with a revolutionary democratic movement, the Canadian government temporarily renounced taking control of the territory. The Métis, by revolutionary action, had established a bourgeois democratic government and inflicted a humiliating blow on the Canadian ruling class and British imperialists. Interestingly, this was a united struggle of English and French Métis, where the linguistic rights of both groups were to be guaranteed by the new government. The Métis issued a list of rights to be presented to Ottawa. The Canadian state, while preparing to receive the delegates of the provisional government, was also preparing to repress the movement. In May 1870, after negotiations between the Provisional Government and Ottawa, the Manitoba Act was passed, creating the province of Manitoba. However, in the following months, troops were sent to re-exert the authority of the federal government, suppress the Provisional Government, and crush the rebellion. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald said in a letter that, quote, Should these miserable half-breeds not disband, they must be put down." Unquote. In August 1870, British and Canadian troops arrived at Fort Garry to take control. Riel, rightly fearing that he would be lynched, escaped to the United States. 
This is an example of the typical behavior of the Canadian ruling class towards First Nations and Métis people since day one. A mix of feigned conciliation and repression. In a similar fashion, Justin Trudeau today can talk about quote-unquote reconciliation at the same time as the RCMP is sent to repress the Wet'suwet'en in British Columbia. In this manner, Trudeau is simply continuing the same policy the Canadian ruling class has pursued for centuries. The Canadian ruling class was able to put down the Red River Rebellion and move ahead with the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. While a transcontinental railway was a condition of British Columbia's entry into Confederation, this was also a lucrative endeavor for which there was intense competition among the ruling class. That is to say, it all boiled down to profit in the end. In 1872, shipping magnate Sir Hugh Allen was granted the contract. It was soon discovered that he had donated $350,000 to the Conservative Party before being awarded the contract, forcing Macdonald's government to resign in 1873. He would return to power in 1878. To protect profits, John A. Macdonald deliberately starved thousands of indigenous people to clear a path for the Canadian Pacific Railway and open up the prairies to white settlement. He ordered officials in the Department of Indian Affairs in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan to withhold food rations from First Nations until they moved to federally designated reserves far off the path of the railway. The First Nations were faced with starvation and were trapped on reserves from which they could not leave without the permission of a government Indian agent. Living conditions on the reserves were abysmal, but if indigenous people forced onto them, complained about food rations, which were already substandard, they would find that their rations would be cut even further. Historical records show that this practice was an explicit directive from Macdonald to federal officials. There are also public records of Macdonald bragging about keeping the indigenous population, quote, on the verge of starvation, unquote, in order to save government funds. One Canadian historian, Jack Dasher, tracked a food shipment contaminated with tuberculosis, which had resulted in a deadly outbreak back to an American company in which a senior official in the Canadian state had a major financial stake. Daschuk concluded, quote, The uncomfortable truth is that modern Canada is founded upon ethnic cleansing and genocide, unquote. However, the crushing of indigenous peoples in the pursuit of profits was not achieved without a fight. Both the Métis and the indigenous groups of the West put up a courageous fight against the Canadian state, notably again during the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. The origins of the Northwest Rebellion can be traced back to the defeat of the 1869-1870 Red River Rebellion. With the Manitoba Act of 1870, the Canadian government had promised to give 1.4 million acres of land to Métis families. However, Bureaucratic delays slowed down the process, and this measure was never implemented fully. In addition, settlers coming from the east were allowed land even before the Métis, which showed that the government had a heavy bias against the Métis. Two-thirds of the Métis, frustrated by the broken promises of the Canadian state, fled the province, with most of them moving westward and establishing settlements in what today is Saskatchewan.
With the development of agriculture and the advance of the Canadian Pacific Railway, there was a steady decline in the buffalo population. The Métis felt that their traditional semi-nomadic culture based on buffalo hunting was threatened, and they sent a petition to the government in 1874 for action to be taken, but to no avail. There were similar grievances coming from various indigenous groups. The Canadian government, however, wanted to force the indigenous population to abandon their nomadic life and establish themselves in villages based on agriculture. The indigenous peoples on the reserves saw their food rations cut in 1883, which naturally added to the anger and discontent. The white settlers of the West also had their own grievances. They were promised a life of prosperity by moving west, which never came. Representatives of the Métis, the First Nations, and the white settlers met in May 1884 to discuss how they should confront the federal government. They decided to ask Louis Riel to come back from his exile in the U.S. to help them in their struggle. On the basis of the unity of all the exploited classes and oppressed peoples of the West, there was great potential for a successful revolutionary movement against the Canadian state. In December 1884, a petition was sent to the government with all the demands of the Métis, First Nations, and white settlers. The government's response was to set up a public inquiry to investigate the problems. This was seen as another empty gesture, and under the leadership of Riel, a new rebellion erupted. On March 18th and 19th, an armed Métis group formed the Provisional Government of Saskatchewan, with Riel as president. The rebellious Métis and First Nations scored a victory in a battle on March 25th and 26th against the Northwest Mounted Police, the forerunner to the RCMP, which had been established in 1873 to maintain order in the West and crush Indigenous resistance. The victory encouraged other First Nations to join the movement, However, the Canadian government wasted no time and quickly moved to regain control. No less than 5,000 men were sent by Ottawa to put down the rebellion. Racist hysteria was whipped up by the ruling class in the press with dire warnings about quote-unquote Indian outrages that needed to be stopped. This campaign succeeded somewhat in dividing the population and turning some of the white settlers against the armed struggle. On May 15th, Riel surrendered, and in June, the rebellion was over. It is revealing to note that the first war in history, waged by Canadian troops without British soldiers assisting, was here, in Canada, against the Métis and First Nations protesting and resisting mistreatment by the Canadian state. Once again, we can see that the Canadian state and its coercive police apparatus are founded on the subjugation and violent suppression of Indigenous peoples' sovereignty. The subsequent trial of Riel caused massive division amongst the Canadian population. The fact that Riel was given a death sentence while the lives of other rebel prisoners were spared was a cynical political maneuver. In a classic divide-and-rule move, Macdonald, the Conservative Prime Minister, was seeking the support of the Anglophone population at the expense of Francophones and people in Quebec. Propaganda was spread, claiming that Riel was a traitor. The trial was seen in Quebec for what it was, an example of the oppression of Francophones by the Canadian state. 
the jury was entirely composed of Anglophones. MacDonald infamously said about Riel, quote, He shall die, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor, unquote. And this is what happened. Louis Riel was hanged on November 16, 1885, in Regina. His execution caused an outpouring of anger in Quebec. A massive demonstration of 50,000 people was held on November 22nd in Montreal. The biggest demonstration in the history of Quebec at the time. On November 27th, six Cree and two Assiniboine warriors were also hanged. From the bourgeois perspective, Louis Riel is today considered one of the most controversial figures in Canadian history. For our part, we are proud to consider Riel as part of our revolutionary heritage. His struggle to resist the Canadian state and for the rights of the oppressed Métis people is an inspiration for us today. Residential Schools Tools of Cultural Genocide While genocidal and violent tactics were used in the face of resistance, the Canadian state's preferred policy was still assimilation. This is because a pool of laborers was largely lacking in Canada. Canada never developed a large slave trade, and settlement was insufficient to meet the needs of capitalist development. Therefore, the capitalist class reasoned that the indigenous people could be broken and assimilated to serve their needs. One of the main tools toward this end was the horrific residential school system. Missionary schools, run by the church, had been in operation as early as the early 17th century in order to quote-unquote civilize indigenous children by imposing the Christian faith on them. The new federal government began making small per-student grants to many of the church-run boarding schools in the 1880s, and dramatically increased its involvement in residential schooling. The purpose of the schools was not to educate, but to break indigenous children's link to their culture and identity. This is why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, TRC, concluded in its 2015 report that the residential school system amounted to cultural genocide. The Canadian government pursued this policy of cultural genocide because it wished to relieve itself of its legal and financial obligations to indigenous people and gain further control over their land and resources. If every indigenous person had been assimilated, there would be no reserves, no treaties, and no indigenous rights. Furthermore, by breaking children's link to their culture and traditions, the hope was to turn them into malleable wage laborers upon graduation instead of relying on their traditional forms of survival. Even though the last residential school closed in the 1990s, breaking the link between indigenous people and their culture, language, and traditions is a continuing imperative for Canadian capitalism. This can be seen in the chronic underfunding of things like First Nations education, healthcare, and the intolerable conditions on reserves and amongst the urban poor. From the 1870s until the last school closed in 1996, at least 150,000 First Nations, Métis, 
and Inuit children attended residential schools in Canada. The Indian Act gave Indian Affairs the power to forcibly remove children from their homes. These children were essentially kidnapped. Inuit and Métis people are not governed by the Act, but at various points in time, their children were enrolled in either federal schools or in provincial ones with similar tenets and policies, often in partnership with the Church. More than 130 government-funded, church-administered schools existed across the country, with the express purpose of quote-unquote civilizing indigenous children, tearing families apart, and leaving scars that continue to be passed on generationally. The conditions of the schools and the treatment of the students was horrific. Spiritual and cultural practices were banned, and the children were not allowed to speak their own languages. In a dehumanizing fashion, they were referred to by numbers in many schools. Punishment of children for misbehavior was often brutal and abusive. There were reports of children being lashed, beaten, having their heads shaved, being locked in small confinement cells for weeks at a time, given diets of water and bread, and having their pants pulled down and publicly shamed. Physical and sexual abuse was rampant. At least 3,200 children who attended the schools never returned home. Records were regularly destroyed, suggesting that the actual number of students who died may have been far higher. Between 1936 and 1944 alone, 200,000 Indian Affairs files were destroyed. Causes of death included disease, 50% tuberculosis, fires, and suicide with many children dying of exposure while trying to escape. Poor health care and nutrition were the norm. Government and church officials were made aware of the problems many times, and nothing was ever done to stop the abuse. This is because the abuse was both implicit and explicit in the design of the residential school system. Returning home after years separated from their families, and unable to speak the language of their elders, students became alienated from their traditional communities. They did not receive the nurturing care that children need to develop healthy relationships in their adult lives, leading to cycles of violence and mental health challenges passed down from generation to generation. This is what is known as intergenerational trauma, and its impacts on indigenous communities have been devastating. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission traced a direct connection between the intergenerational trauma suffered by indigenous families over the course of more than a century and social problems faced by indigenous communities today such as poverty, homelessness, violence, high rates of health problems, incarceration, mental health challenges, and drug and alcohol addiction. The White Paper while the last residential school would not close until 1996, state policy shifted from the 1950s onwards towards what was termed quote-unquote integration. In 1951, amendments to the Indian Act emphasized measures for integrating services for First Nation peoples with services for all Canadians, including phasing them into the mainstream school system. The final step in this policy of quote-unquote integration 
was introduced in 1969, when the federal government under Pierre Trudeau issued what became known as the White Paper and announced its intention to absolve itself of responsibility for indigenous affairs through the repealing of the Indian Act. In keeping with Trudeau's vision of a quote-unquote just society, the federal government proposed repealing legislation it considered discriminatory. The Trudeau government viewed the Indian Act as discriminatory, not, for example, because it was the legislative framework that governed the destruction of indigenous communities and genocide of indigenous peoples, but because it applied only to indigenous peoples and not to Canadians in general. The Trudeau government thus proposed ending the special legal status of First Nations peoples and dismantling the Department of Indian Affairs in the name of quote-unquote equality. The White Paper stated that removing the unique legal status established by the Indian Act would quote, enable the Indian people to be free, free to develop Indian cultures in an environment of legal, social, and economic equality with other Canadians. Unquote. In addition to the elimination of Indian status for First Nations and the dissolution of the Department of Indian Affairs, the White Paper proposed transferring responsibility for Indigenous affairs to the provinces and integrating these services into those provided for the general population. The White Paper also proposed the privatization of reserve lands such that it could be sold by the band and or its members. There was significant opposition to the White Paper on the part of First Nations peoples. While many recognized the Indian Act as a racist and colonial piece of legislation, they did not want to lose the few rights they were guaranteed under it. Firstly, the White Paper had completely ignored the issues and concerns raised by Indigenous leaders during the consultation process for the paper. Many Indigenous people viewed the White Paper as the finishing stroke in the long-standing goal of the Canadian ruling class and state to assimilate Indigenous peoples into bourgeois society. Many correctly saw it as leading directly to cultural genocide and saw it as a crass attempt on the part of the federal government to, quote, pass the buck, unquote, to the provinces. It was seen as an attempt by the Canadian government to absolve itself of responsibility for historical injustices. The White Paper was considered a slap in the face by many Indigenous people. While many would have been happy to see the end of the Indian Act and the Department of Indian Affairs, and along with them, centuries of oppression, many viewed the White Paper as an attempt on the part of the federal governments to walk away from its obligations under various agreements and treaties. The lives of Indigenous people had been completely governed and dominated by these accords, and as oppressed people, they were never in a position to simply walk away from them. They could not simply ignore the federal government or the terms of the Indian Act, as these defined their very existence. For the federal government now to simply walk away from its historical obligations, all the while preaching quote-unquote equality and the privatization of reserve lands, was more than an insult. Eliminating status for First Nations and transferring responsibility for Indigenous affairs to the provinces essentially amounted to placing reserves on an equal footing with municipalities under Canadian law. Many reserves, if not most, are not economically viable, 
and could not compete with other municipalities for jobs and investment. The result would be an emptying out of the reserves as people left to find work in the cities. After centuries of economic strangulation of the reserves by the federal government, the White Paper, by now trying to equalize them with other municipalities, while offering no legal or economic protection for reserve residents, was correctly seen by many indigenous people as an attempt to destroy the reserves and force indigenous people into the cities. This was in reality a type of enclosure act and could only be understood as forced assimilation and genocide. The white paper also sparked a new era in political organizing in indigenous communities. Harold Cardinal, a young Cree man who was head of the Indian Association of Alberta, responded to the white paper with a book called The Unjust Society, exposing the hypocrisy of Trudeau's so-called just society. Cardinal stated openly that the white paper was, quote, a thinly disguised program of extermination through assimilation, unquote, and viewed it as a form of cultural genocide. In 1970, the Indian Association of Alberta rejected the white paper in a document called Citizens Plus, which is also known as the Red Paper. The Red Paper became a central position around which indigenous opposition to the white paper galvanized. In British Columbia, the controversy over the white paper sparked a new period of political organizing. In November of 1969, three indigenous leaders, Rose Charlie, Philip Paul, and Don Moses, brought together 140 tribal leaders, the largest meeting of tribal leaders to that point. They met to develop a collective response to the white paper, and in turn founded the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, UBCIC. The UBCIC issued its own rejection of the white paper in a document called the, quote, Brown Paper, unquote, which still forms the cornerstone of its current policy. As a result of First Nations opposition, the white paper was formally withdrawn in 1973. This had the effect of strengthening First Nations organizations across the country, particularly the National Indian Brotherhood, which would later form the Assembly of First Nations. One of the first acts of a socialist government in Canada would be to repeal the Indian Act. Getting rid of the oppressive piece of colonial legislation would be one of the first steps toward ending centuries of oppression of indigenous peoples. However, indigenous people themselves must play the decisive role in this liberation from colonial oppression. A socialist government could not act unilaterally in this regard and must act in full unity with indigenous peoples. In repealing the Indian Act, we would guarantee full rights to indigenous peoples on and off reserves and work in unison with indigenous peoples in developing a plan to end colonial oppression. Under socialism, the way forward will be determined by indigenous peoples themselves, especially in relation to the Indian Act and the future of the reserve system. To be sure, it would be just as criminal and oppressive to force indigenous people off reserves as it was to force them there in the first place. From Red Power to Today In the context of the general societal radicalization of the 1960s and 1970s, there was also an upturn in the indigenous movement. The white paper only added fuel to the fire. 
the period of the late 1960s and early 1970s was a revolutionary era with mass movements and revolutions all over the world, and indigenous people drew direct inspiration from many of these movements. The movement that developed in North America at the time was generally known as the Red Power Movement. This movement was globally influenced by the Civil Rights Movement, the Anti-War Movement, and the American Indian Movement, AIM, in the U.S. But the movement in general was far from homogenous. Like any struggle of an oppressed group, there were various approaches which ultimately stemmed from different class outlooks. At first, the movement was based on identity, centered around indigenous unity for common cause against the quote-unquote white man. But many indigenous leaders, under the radicalization of events, were pushed to the left, with a layer identifying with revolutionary Marxism. The need to broaden the struggle out to non-indigenous people and to link it to a broader fight against capitalism were also being openly explored and debated. A clear divide within the indigenous movement was also exposed. The most well-known indigenous Marxist, Howard Adams, was active fighting against a layer of petty bourgeois indigenous bureaucrats. He described this in his best-selling book, Prison of Grass. It is common practice of imperial governments to use middle-class native elites to provide support for their administration. Middle-class society, which shares the same value system and ideology as the ruling class, provides political stability for the capitalist system. Therefore, as soon as natives start action towards liberation, governments make serious efforts to bring native leaders into middle-class society. After these leaders are co-opted, they become supporters of the government and of the colonial rule that suppresses their people. Adams describes how these quote-unquote Uncle Tomahawks were nurtured with the growth of government grants and reliance on white advisors who teach them to be subservient. This layer of petty bourgeois indigenous bureaucrats acted as a break on the movement. Against this trend, a young layer of indigenous Marxists developed throughout the 1960s and helped to found rival organizations to push for more militant tactics. Métis activist Malcolm Norris was a Marxist and a founding member of the Métis Association of Alberta. His friend and collaborator, James P. Brady, was a member of the Communist Party of Canada. There is suspicion that Brady was assassinated for his political activities after he disappeared while out prospecting. Many Métis and Indigenous militants drew openly revolutionary conclusions and sought to link up the Indigenous struggle with the rest of the working class in a fight for socialism. Pre-activist Vern Harper, who was a leader of the movement in Ontario, said that, quote, There's a more militant and revolutionary theme emerging, which is beginning to get support from all elements of the Native movement. Native and non-Native people are seeing that capitalism doesn't serve the masses, it only protects the capitalists' interests." End quote. Harper organized the Native People's Caravan, which traveled from Vancouver to Ottawa to quote-unquote welcome Trudeau's re-election in 1974. This peaceful march was violently repressed by riot police. Just prior to this, Harper had run for the Marxist-Leninist Party in the federal riding of Toronto Centre. There were a series of occupations of government and Indian affairs offices across Canada at this time, 
complemented by several roadblocks. One of the key events was the occupation of Anasinabe Park in Kenora, Ontario in July 1974, where for the first time in this period, arms were used by First Nations people to assert their rights and protect the occupation. This occupation, organized by the Ojibwe Warrior Society, lasted 39 days and involved a standoff between 100 First Nations participants and police, resulting in dozens of arrests. During these events, a wave of racism was whipped up, accompanied by claims that indigenous militants were all communists. This was probably not so far from the truth. The quote-unquote Uncle Tomahawk leaders of the main First Nations political bodies, such as the National Indian Brotherhood and the Provincial Indian Associations, spoke out against the action as condoning violence. Even leaders like Harold Cardinal recoiled when faced with the militancy of ranks in the movement. As the radical indigenous movement subsided, these layers, free from the pressure of the mass movement, moderated even further, developing into a stable group of petty bourgeois and bourgeois natives. Many of these people ironically moved into the orbit of the Liberal Party, as Cardinal himself did in 2000, running unsuccessfully on the Liberal Party ticket. In the United States, this situation developed into a split in the American Indian movement, with a well-known AIM leader, Russell Means, resigning from a right-wing perspective. The AIM Grand Governing Council issued a declaration distancing the group from Means, criticizing him for going to Nicaragua to support the, quote, Mosquito Indians who were all allied with the anti-revolutionary Contras, end quote, as well as his, quote, recent forays into conservative politics, end quote. Means had joined the Libertarian Party and had famously criticized Marxism, saying that, quote, Marxism is as alien to my culture as capitalism, end quote. Another debate emerged between some First Nations men and women. First Nations women were discriminated against under Section 12.1b of the Indian Act, whereby First Nations women who married non-First Nations men lost their status as registered Indians, whereas First Nations men who married non-First Nations women did not. Anishinaabe community worker Jeanette Corbière-Lavelle took the case of discrimination up legally. In 1974, she went to the Supreme Court of Canada to challenge the Indian Act and lost the case, which led her to form the organization Indian Rights for Indian Women. This particular struggle was later won, at least formally according to bourgeois law, through Bill C-31, which was passed in 1985. This so-called victory, however, still has a lot of problems. The 1985 amendment to the Indian Act introduced a, quote, second-generation cutoff, end quote, clause, based entirely on the racist concepts of blood quantum historically used by the North American ruling class to divide indigenous communities, restrict and reduce indigenous numbers, and essentially commit cultural genocide. The 1985 amendment divides those with status into two groups. Those with full status, referred to as 6-1, and those with half status, referred to as 6-2. A child of a marriage between a full status, 6-1, person, and a non-status person qualifies for half-status, 
If that child grows up and in turn marries a non-status person, the child of that union would be non-status. If a person with half-status, 6-2, marries a person with full status, 6-1, or another person with half-status, 6-2, the children revert to full status, 6-1. This means that many people are excluded from status, meaning they cannot be band members, which in turn determines who can live on reserves, who can run for political positions, and who has access to education and other funding. While questions of status and funding are the fundamental issue today, this second-generation cutoff will lead to a future crisis. As Pam Palmiter, a Mi'kmaq lawyer of the Eel River Bar First Nation, explained, quote, There was a long-term effect of this type of legislation, that every single First Nation in Canada effectively has an extinction date, a day when that nation's last registered Indian is born. This is a looming reality for some First Nations, who face legislated extinction in 50 years or less. End quote. The Native Women's Association of Canada reported that five years after the introduction of Bill C-31, only 2% of reinstated women had returned to their reserves. Furthermore, components of Bill C-31 continue to discriminate against Indigenous women. Status Indians are not afforded the right of equal division of matrimonial property on reserves, and property allocations are still determined by patrilineal descent, which means that women who separate from their partners often lose their homes. This forces women off reserves, excludes them from decision-making power and resource access on reserves, and perpetuates their social and economic disadvantage. A rift had opened up between the Indian Brotherhood and Indigenous women activists and organizations. The Indian Brotherhood resisted women's attempts to amend the Indian Act, arguing that this could open up the door for other quote-unquote unwanted amendments. Essentially, they demanded that Indigenous women put their needs on the back burner, which sowed division and weakened the movement. This shows one of the many ways that the oppressed and exploited are kept divided on the basis of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and so on, and how such divisions only serve the interests of the oppressor. The movement as a whole would have been strengthened if indigenous men and indigenous women fought together. While this wave of resistance eventually ebbed, it would be far from the end of indigenous struggle. There were multiple struggles throughout the 1990s and 2000s, such as Militant Standoffs in Oka, 1990, Ipperwash, 1995, Gustafson Lake, 1995, and Burnt Church, 1999. In 2006, we saw the Six Nation Occupations, followed by the National Days of Action in 2007 and 2008, which led to Indigenous activists blockading stretches of Highway 401 and the CN Railroad between Toronto and Montreal. Leaders of these actions were often rounded up and arrested. The scope of this document does not allow an in-depth look at each of these struggles, but in each case, indigenous people have shown a militant, fighting spirit that points to the revolutionary potential of this layer of society. Continued oppressive conditions gave rise to a new movement in 2012, Idle No More. This new wave of protest was sparked by the Conservative Party's Bill C-45, which threatened environmental protections and Indigenous treaty rights. 
resulting in mass demonstrations across the country. This struggle was embodied in the hunger strike of Attawapiskat Chief Teresa Spence, protesting the appalling living conditions and housing crisis on the Attawapiskat Reserve. The movement eventually died down, but undoubtedly brought indigenous issues to the forefront of the political arena, serving to politicize many young people, both indigenous and non-indigenous. Class Divisions in the Indigenous Community Over time, the assimilation of indigenous peoples into the system of capitalist relations has created class divisions in indigenous communities on and off reserves. Some segments have used programs and benefits won from the government to get ahead and become integrated into Canadian society. Similar to the black population in the United States, a thin layer of petty bourgeois and bourgeois indigenous people has been created. These people often control the band councils and the assembly of First Nations, and their interests are increasingly divorced from the rest of the community. This has proved a useful tool for liberal and conservative politicians who base themselves on the more well-off layers, who can then attempt to rein in any movements should they go too far. These developments have even led to a class struggle within the indigenous communities. For example, there was the situation at a highly profitable casino near Port Perry, Ontario, which is run by the Mississauga of Scugog Island First Nation. In 2003, the 1,000 indigenous workers at the Great Blue Heron Casino filed for unionization with the Canadian Union of Auto Workers, CAW demanding better pay and benefits. The band council responded by claiming that the province's Labor Relations Act does not apply on its land. Instead, the band council enacted its own labor code, which would bar strikes and require employees to pay a $12,000 fee in order to be able to file labor complaints. The band's lawyer cited the Constitution Act of 1982 and the First Nations Land Management Act which grants the band the right to control access to reserves. A similar situation occurred at the Northern Lights Casino near Prince Albert, where the CAW was involved in a two-year court battle with the Saskatchewan Indian Gaming Authority. The Liberals, under Justin Trudeau, who have hypocritically spoken of building a quote, nation-to-nation, -nation, unquote, relationship with Indigenous peoples, have based themselves on this layer of the Indigenous bourgeois. This class divide in Indigenous communities has become very visible during recent events surrounding the question of pipelines. In the case of the Coastal Gaslink Pipeline, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs stand opposed to the pipeline for reasons related to historic land title and for environmental reasons. Many Indigenous groups sent messages of support and stood in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en as they blockaded access to pipeline construction zones. However, on the other side of the class divide, some First Nations band councils along the route of the pipeline, representing this layer of indigenous bourgeois, have signed lucrative agreements with owner TransCanada Corporation, now TC Energy. They therefore have a vested interest in seeing this project go ahead. In the case of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, various indigenous groups along the pipeline route oppose its construction, 
Some are opposed for environmental reasons, while others are opposed because they feel the consultation with the government was meaningless and their concerns have been ignored. On the other hand, similar to the Coastal GasLink pipeline, some 51 First Nations bands in BC and Alberta signed deals with Trans Mountain worth more than $400 million. We cannot fall into the romantic illusion that all Indigenous people will be opposed to pipelines and other development projects out of love for the environment, etc. Rather than oppose projects such as pipelines, the layer of Indigenous bourgeois have bought into the propaganda of the oil barons and in fact welcome pipelines as profitable opportunities to advance their class interests. Others sign agreements out of desperation and fear they will get nothing to address the problems of their underfunded reserves. The pressure of capitalist relations has driven a layer of indigenous bourgeois to seek ownership of pipelines to get their slice of the pie. Three separate indigenous business groups recently emerged that launched ownership bids for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. This would put them on a collision course with the many other indigenous groups opposed to the pipeline, again showing that in the end, class interests will always take precedence over historic or community interests. We see here the importance of having a working class approach. While we must support indigenous struggles for land and resource rights under capitalism, this means different things to different layers of the indigenous population. The upper layers use anything gained from the federal government to enrich themselves, and even use constitutional clauses related to self-government to try to stop indigenous workers from unionizing. However, as in all things, at the end of the day, the class question shines through. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.